Hey, hey, what is going on, everybody? That's right. We are back. The podcast, Pete Forsey, episode 31. That's right. We took a month off, and now we're back at it. I'm coming at you on November 6th. That's a Wednesday. I'm searching around here, trying to find the uh, the college basketball game, Missouri. College Hoops just started up, I believe, yesterday officially with the uh, you know, the powerhouses kicking off in, in that tournament that they always go. I'm actually I'm, I was searching around for the Missouri game to take a peek at that and couldn't find it. And I knew they were playing tonight. I wasn't entirely sure who. And, and I checked it out, and it was Incarnate Word. And I was like, what? Incarnate Word? is? I thought that was a high school in, in St. Louis. I didn't even know they had a institution of higher education. So I'm not even worried about that. I'm actually checking out the Bulls and the Atlanta Hawks. For those who may have missed it, I'm, I'm now in Chicago, so I get those games regionally. And the Bulls, once again, have a big halftime lead. Uh, this time against Atlanta. Yesterday evening, it was against the L.A. Lakers, and they blew that, losing to uh, LeBron's team. So that's kind of the season we're in now. I took that month off of October because, obviously, that was the peak of the powers as far as this podcast is concerned. From a content perspective, so much, I really can't even give you any content because there's so much going on. By the time you're even listening to the podcast, it's going to be outdated. We had playoff baseball every night. There's a game every day. And then, of course, we have the NFL on Sundays, and they play on Thursdays and Mondays, too. I just decided this is going to be a good time to take a step back and just watch the games, because ultimately, that's what I want to do, and that's what you want to do. Um, and you're not going to listen to something you don't care what I have to say by the time it's outdated, uh, because your team's already played uh, their next game. So, we talk now. It's Things have died down a little bit. The takes... Man, they're, they're, we have a month full of takes. I'm going to shorten it up for you. Because really, I could go on for about six hours on everything that's happened. Last time we talked, it was week five in the NFL. We're now on week ten. Okay, things are a little bit clearer. As I was saying today to someone else, it's still not entirely uh, clear. I got a text coming in here. Sorry about that. Just delete that. Um, yeah, we, we got a little bit clearer picture on what's going to happen in the NFL. But I always like to say this league is about post-Thanksgiving. That's when really things get narrowed down and we know who's in the hunt, who's fake, who's for real. So we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit of, along with just the major headlines as far as teams. You know, we like to talk quarterbacks here, what we thought was going to happen, what's not. We're also going to talk about the Cardinals, really, because they, they got an offseason that's a little bit unique. Really talk about their 2019 season because it's kind of hard to put your finger on how to view it. I think I got a pretty good idea on that. Uh, we're, we're going to recap everything. A little hat tip to the Washington Nationals. i got to figure this out so this stop, stop happening. Um, but here we go. It's episode 31. Welcome back. We're excited to get going. Thanks for listening. Let's get to it. Okay, so getting to the St. Louis Cardinals. Obviously, they went to the second round of the playoffs. They advanced to the NLCS, getting swept by the eventual champion, Washington Nationals. A, uh, of course, congrats to them, okay? They are just really the storybook of what is great to see in teams. They reminded me of the Baltimore Ravens. The Ravens, for years, would get into the playoffs, and I wouldn't say they choked, and I people throw that term around a little too liberally for my liking, they just, they 
advance a little bit. They couldn't make it to the eventual championship game, the Super Bowl in the NFL, and then they eventually did. It was 2012, Ray Lewis's final season. They take home the hardware. The Nationals, they do the same thing. Um, little shout out to the literally the only Washington Nationals fan that I know. That's Hardy Cox. Congrats, Hardy. I'm sure you're uh, you're on cloud nine there. Um, he actually pointed out to me probably a more apt comparison is the Washington Capitals NHL hockey team. Okay, they had a similar run with Alex Ovechkin in that gang. So yeah, that's probably appropriate. Cardinals lost to that team, and frankly. They lost to a team that was better, that they, they just got outplayed. I remember watching game one in Annabelle Sanchez, and there were some people, like, I had a buddy texting me during that. He's like, what the heck's going on? He was at a wedding. I couldn't believe it. He was missing the game and not watching the playoffs. I was like, really? Are you, you wouldn't plan around this? You wouldn't say no to a wedding in October? I mean, you know when the playoffs are held. But anyway, he was asking me for, like, what the heck's going on? And I said, really? If you watch Annabelle Sanchez pitch, there was nothing the Cardinals hitters could do. I don't think any lineup was capable of hitting them that night. And that is actually, you know, reflected in the fact that he carried a no-hitter into the eighth inning. And then you had a practical repeat performance by Max Scherzer the next day. So it was a quick 2-0 hole. And then you you had Strasburg. He wasn't quite as good, but you, you would put it up there as, you know, top performances that you'll see in a playoff game, uh, but it wasn't even the best of the bunch so far, and next thing you know, you're down three games to none, and, yeah, I mean, it's over. I mean, the pressure of winning four in a row in the playoffs, knowing you have to do it, history shows it doesn't happen, except, of course, for the 2004 Red Sox. Now, the Achilles heel, obviously, was the fact the Cardinals couldn't score runs. Now, I, I just mentioned how good Washington was. Give them the credit. But I think people who followed this 2019 team closely on the St. Louis side could have told you that them not scoring runs would be a problem. And that's kind of where they're going to have to focus the offseason. I have some some targets in mind. I know, obviously, that Marcelo Zuna is one of the bigger departures or potential departures. Right now, he's a free agent. I'm of the camp where I would like to see them make some some serious offers of them. Right now, it kind of just seems to be eyewash. They're going to take a look, meet with the representatives of Ozuna, but all signs point to him walking. And I don't necessarily think that's the best approach. I do have a breaking point. Really, mine is four years. I don't want to see Marcelo Ozuna longer in a cardinal cardinal uniform longer than four years beyond this point, okay? Because that would take him into age 34. I don't see him aging too well, but I do like this kind of four-year window if, and only if, we can get some extensive medical background on that shoulder, okay? Because health has always been a question with him. I think Ozuna is a great guy. I think he's one of those things, or excuse me, he's one of those people that just loves to play. I know Dan McLaughlin, Cardinals regional broadcaster. He's pointed that out a few times now in watching Ozuna for a couple of years, and I totally agree. He's a guy who just loves to be in the lineup. If you stuck him behind the plate, he would do it, and you would he wouldn't have any qualms about it. Marcel Ozuna has also been um, a victim of some tough luck. I think that he does a better job of getting the ball in the air, and when he does, that's when you can see him explode, and explode in a way that you know, you look at his 2017 season and you look you look at it and you're like, man, that's a Hall of Fame season. 37 bombs. I think it was like 120 runs driven in on that Marlins team. And, you know, three, four, five 
Hall of Fame slash line. You look at it and you're just like, wow. Now, I always thought he was going to regress, and he's somewhere in between where he's been as a Cardinal now and in there. I think when he gets the ball in the air, he's dangerous. Um, I'd like to see him make a run at him, get some more info on that shoulder, offer him four years. It's really tricky with the way free agency works now. Is it going to be beyond $18 million? $18 million, 19 is right in that ballpark that I feel. I think by threshold is a four-year... You know, 88 mil. I really, I'm not going to the 100 mil mark. He just hasn't been that guy, and he's proven again to be injured. I think that would be fair. Of course, being on the market is about exploiting the market and just the leverage that you have, so it may not work out that way, and that's why I have my breaking point with the Cardinals. Now, secondly, the other bat that I think they could target, because again, this is about offense here. I think he's a great bounce back candidate. I think he's been one of the more underrated players in the game. It's going to be a head-scratcher when I say it. And, you know, I think you really got to just look at what you're trying to do here. You're trying to accomplish more runs being scored. I think D.D. Gregorius could be a very good candidate for the St. Louis Cardinals. Now, as far as getting into the contract, that's going to be tricky. It's really about what D.D.'s camp values him at and what they're willing to settle for. He could take a pillow contract. I... You know, in relation to Josh Donaldson's with the Atlanta Braves, they did that in 2019. He took a one-year 23. I'm not saying that's the number for Didi, but he could take something similar to his position. Didi Gregorius, I think, is one of the best left-handed hitters against left-handed pitching. And as we know, the Cardinals, they haven't had a whole lot of success there. And last time I checked, the Chicago Cubs, don't they have, well, I guess he's departing now, Cole Hamels. They had three lefties in their rotation. So that's kind of key to have a good lefty hitter. Colton Wong's made some strides. I think Didi Gregorius could be a real bounce-back candidate. He plays every day. He plays gold glove shortstop. Now, you may be seeing what about Paul DeYoung. I, I like Paul DeYoung, okay? He really played a lot down the stretch, probably more than he had to. But let's not kid ourselves here. The guy makes bench money. He makes $4 million. To say because of his contract you have to play him, no, you don't. He can be a utility player because that's what he gets paid as. Anything extra is bonus. That's why you, I mean, that's called locking him up to a contract that potentially his production will exceed. Now, to this point, I don't know how much it has exceeded that because right now I'm looking at a guy who is about 10 to 15% better at his position. So to say that it's wrong to cut into playing time there, no, I don't think it is. And like we mentioned, uh, you know, the Cardinals ran him into the ground. And if it's a situation where he cuts into time with Matt Carpenter, that's okay, considering where we're at with him. Um, I'll probably dive into next week about the Fowler-Carpenter situation. But as far as adding a hitter, those are kind of the two that I think um, I'm sitting with right now in regards to the Cardinals. I think that they could add back Marcelo Zuna. I think that... Gregorius is someone they should target. Um, and then, you know, I, I gotta give I gotta give it up here. Because I was wrong on this. And he proved me dead wrong, and I think what they're doing now is the correct course of action. I, I've been tough on Adam Wainwright. Really have. I thought it was an emotional decision to bring him back, even at the reduced rate that the Cardinals did. I thought it was a bit overextended when they decided to let him win, or basically they handed him 
it was his job to lose as far as Wainwright, uh, the fifth spot in the rotation. But you know what he did? He put up an average season, and he earned all his incentives. He took home 10 mil last year, and, you know, re-upping for one more year? Yeah, I think it is wise. I think instead of going to someone that you have less familiarity with, you know, a lot of teams have to do that maybe in February where they sign that free agent for $8 million. They don't know what they're getting, i.e. Trevor Cahill, Angels, Matt Harvey. You can throw that in there. Do it with someone that you know. Do it with someone that you know. You got Adam Wainwright. You've had him for 15 years. He was average last year, and I got to give it up. I was wrong. I think where I'm kind of learning with some of these older pitchers, and maybe we need to learn a little bit more, is that these guys can reinvent themselves, but it really is kind of like a a one, or excuse me, it's beyond one year, it's a two to like three year deal where they actually tinker a little bit with not their mechanics, but just their arsenal. You know, Wainwright's the latest example. I didn't think he could do it. CC Sabathia, there was a couple dog years in there. Do you remember 2014, 15? It was 16. It was like, this guy's done. What do you do? He came back. He had above average to average season. Um, there's another guy in there. I forget, but, uh, you know, very notable. Who was it? Anyway, it, it just, it takes a few years for these guys to kind of tinker with it. And then, you know what? You find that they, they really are serviceable. Bartolo Colon, you know, he, I mean, he was still pitching at a higher rate. So, I, I I will say I like Wainwright and the Cardinals hammering out a deal. Um, a year ago, I was you know talking completely opposite, and and I'll give it up to him there. I, I was wrong on that one. I think the Cardinals those are the moves they need to make as far as potentially upgrading this roster to where they can be a little fearsome at the plate on the mound. Uh, the Cardinals offseason that's where I think things should start in free agency. I may have mentioned it before on this podcast, and it's only more present on my mind since this team did win last week, and because I'm watching the NBA, where it really does exist, okay? You've had executives flat out say it, including the great Magic Johnson, uh, before he was a part of the Los Angeles Lakers front office. The team I'm talking about, though, is the Miami Dolphins. There's been this idea that they are tanking, that word, that is just a total... Uh, myth in the NFL. I do not believe that even front offices, even the people upstairs that are making the roster moves, they're not trying to lose. What they're trying to do is reshuffle the deck, if you will. They are replenishing their resources, and that is the goal. You've seen teams try to do that exact concept while also wanting to win games. I don't think Miami's intention was we need to lose games to get high draft picks. I think they said we need to accumulate picks while also trying to build a younger roster, have them gain experience, and see if they're any good. That's the whole point of playing young players is we got to see who's good to potentially pay later on and also have them produce to win football games. The Miami Dolphins just beat the New York Jets. The New York Jets are in complete shambles. They are just they're pathetic from their head coach, who I've defended. And it's pretty much indefensible to defend them at, at this point in time, but they got far bigger problems beyond their head coach. Miami Dolphins just beat them, who, if you look at their games, they play hard. They've played in close games. They just lack talent. So you already know the coaching staff is 
coaching them hard to win the game and the players are playing hard. I think even the executives, you look at their moves, they're trying to replenish resources to give them flexibility because what they took over, the situation, they realized there's not even an alternative way. First things first, we have to clear the deck because right now, if we were to not do that, we would be working with diminished salary cap, low or fewer draft picks to draft players, and a roster that, as it currently stands, is incapable of winning. I mean, the players that they traded away, did you really think the Dolphins were all that fearsome before they made all those swaps, before they made all the trades, before they cut all those players? I sure as hell didn't. What was the alternative? Those pieces altogether did not create a winning formula. Now, those pieces sold separately, well, that can help us. And that's what Miami is doing. Not only that, if there's anything we've learned from this 2019 season, and like I mentioned, we haven't spoken since week 5. It's now week 10. If you recall, I was somewhat skeptical of the Cleveland Browns. I thought they had a lot of talent but I did think one glaring question was their head coach and if the culture was conducive to winning. The Cleveland Browns are now 2-5. They're going nowhere. And all this demonstrates to me is that culture still reigns true in the NFL. Who is exceeding in the AFC North right now? It's the Pittsburgh Steelers without their starting quarterback, Ben Roethlisberger. Why? Because you have Mike Tomlin. You have Mike Tomlin, who's established in an identity, a way of doing things, showing up every day, expecting to win. This has been a huge culture flex in the NFL in 2019. Andy Reid is missing his starting quarterback, Patrick Mahomes. He's still winning football games. Sean Payton lost his starting quarterback. He's still winning football games. The Steelers... They're still winning. What what about the Browns? Yeah, they're 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 two and five. The New York Jets, they're two and five. They have horrible, horrible culture. And and that's really what this boils down to. There is no taking. Because you know what tanking gets you? Nothing. Nothing. It gets you a lot of hype during the offseason, which you know, I'll admit that. Generates something, generates interest. You sell some tickets prior to the year. But when it comes down to between the lines, what have the Browns showed you? They're a colossal failure. Don't tell me tanking exists. Show me where it's been successful. Even just give me the terms of what is tanking. Taking, you know, a step back figuratively to take two steps forward, is that tanking? Or is that just having a down year? There's 16 games in the NFL. Don't forget. The margins are razor thin. I do not believe for a second when the margins are that thin, that culture is not important and that losing will only fester if you allow it actively into your building. The Pittsburgh Steelers, the Baltimore Ravens, the New England Patriots, the Kansas City Chiefs. Why do they win continuously? culture. You know, one thing that I've always hoped got across to you all, the listeners, I'm never afraid to admit when I botch something. I think it's important to admit where you you 
it got it wrong, so then you can be even better going forward. Because ultimately, that's all we're talking about here, and we we are taking strong opinions. Okay, freezing cold takes, as I've heard people say. That I guess that's what I'm about. Don't really know what even hot and cold takes even mean anymore. But I will admit that when it comes to Lamar Jackson, um, I've gotten him wrong. Now I'll get to in a minute, and you may think I'm basically giving a backdoor answer here. But Lamar Jackson, I was of the group, and he spoke out today. He admitted it, and I'm here to admit it now here with him. Okay, we'll do it on a a joint statement here. I got Lamar Jackson wrong. I thought he should play wide receiver. I did. I thought his skill set would be better utilized that way, and I thought the viability at quarterback, it wasn't there to draft him at the quarterback position. Now, he's obviously been very sensational for the Baltimore Ravens up until this point, and I think that he's demonstrated to me something that I guess I didn't think was there, and that he actually really does look to be a pocket passer. Now, I know at Louisville, he did run a more traditional NFL offense than uh, most college programs at this time. I always knew that. I looked at you know Bobby Petrino's stuff, and I was like, okay, this really is more NFL style. But what I failed to recognize is that, you know, that's what Lamar was actually truly abiding to. He actually was trying to make all the throws from the pocket. And I took for granted that he, he's not looking to use his skill set as a runner. Um, but, you know, the Ravens have gone all in on this thing. And they have the personnel. They have good personnel to make this happen. They have three different tight ends to where you can't cover them all. And you have to account for them all as pass catchers. And then they'll pummel you in the run game. And obviously I watched the Sunday night game. I got that game wrong. I thought New England was going to win that one. I thought they were going to win it handedly. I believe the score was 29-21. to Or I think I said 29-17. And it ended up being really a rout. The only reason the Patriots scored is because the Ravens gifted them two possessions. And of course New England... He had the Edelman fumble out of the half, very uncharacteristic, and uh, that got their juices back to start the uh, the final two quarters of the football game. But it, it it was a situation where you you come away impressed, and it really made me think. You know, this offense isn't very adaptable. It's not very adaptable if you take away a few things, and I think it still is on the table for that to happen down the line. Now, it's going to take a very Discipline skill set. And when Bill Belichick can't do it, that really says something to you. I think it really lies in the defensive line of the opponents. Can they play disciplined, gap integrity, lane football? And can they all be on the same page when accounting for their man on the different formations and the different ball fakes, the different shifts out of what the Ravens do? That's what it's going to take to get the Ravens off their game and then force the weaknesses of of Lamar Jackson because he's got him. Okay, don't kid yourself. He's not that great of a passer. He can be accurate, but ultimately he is an inaccurate quarterback. On a throw-to-throw basis, he does not put the ball where it needs to be placed. If you can do that and force those throws and disrupt the receivers from the line of scrimmage, I do... I still do wonder about the long-term future of Lamar Jackson with that in conjunction with the fact that he's taking, he's going to have a a hit toll. He's going to take a lot of hits. 
And you can tell me that the modern game is more conducive for a quarterback running the football, and I would agree with you, but there's going to be hits that pile up eventually that Lamar Jackson is going to have to play through. He's going to become a little more hesitant, and by the age of 28, he's 22 right now, we could be looking at the end of the line. Ask Cam Newton. There are questions that Cam Newton, and I'm going to get to that later, that he's done in Carolina, that he's done. So after a while, yeah, I do worry about Lamar Jackson still. I do worry about coordinators after accruing tape, finding out how to do this, and the quote-unquote blueprint being there for other teams to replicate. Okay, we see it all the time. Look at the Rams. I mean, they're still playing some good offense, but when you run into a good team that can take away and force Goff to play, uh, hit the holes in the zone defense, they're not the same team. When you speed up the game on the Rams, they're not the same team. When the Rams aren't playing for a head, they're not the same team. It's going to be interesting, and I'm not ready to say it quite yet. Not fully. Lamar Jackson can play some quarterback. He can catch. He can take the snap. All right, I was wrong on that one. He shouldn't have moved to wide receiver. They're they're plenty viable with him taking the snap, but I'm not ready to anoint him a superstar. Not yet. This is still, when it comes down to it, in playoff football, we saw it last year with them, this is a drop-back league. When the good teams in January and February, when it's cold, when those are the better teams that are tougher, that are more disciplined, when they force you to beat them from the pocket, the entirety of the game, from behind, when you have to manufacture drives, I'm not ready to say it for the Ravens and Lamar Jackson. I'm not ready to anoint him an elite quarterback, a superstar quarterback. This is still a novelty of an offense. The originality of it, there's still a factor in that that is winning them football games. I will say it. Can he play some quarterback in this league? Yes, but let's just pump the brakes a little bit on where he is from a tier standpoint in the NFL. So the other thing I want to get to in regards to baseball, and there's been a lot of movement since I know it kind of all picked up steam the last time, you know, uh, we were on here and there has been more vacancies now. They have been filled. We got a couple remaining, but I do want to give some thoughts on the managerial um, hires in Major League Baseball. So, you know, a few of them are are pretty relevant to, I think, the... uh, the audience that we have here, we had the Cubs, we had the Cardinals, we had the Royals. Really, I think all, all, or excuse me, not the Cardinals, we had the Royals, and we had the Cubs that I think a lot of people are interested in there. And in, in regards to those two, you know, I think David Ross, I, I said it, he just really hasn't displayed anything to me that shows me that he is going to be a guy that tactically is going to help you out. In fact, I think he may be on the end that hurts you a little bit especially with the fact that he knows these players so well. There's some of, some of them that he's caught before. I can't help but think he's just going to go uh, a little too much with, with his gut, you know, with, with his instinct. And I'm not here to hate on what those two things are. That's experience, okay? Experience with managers is nothing more than the cognitive recognition of, of patterns, Okay, whether that's in conscious uh, or subconsciously in or out of conscious, I guess would be the correct thing there. You know, 
I'm okay with that. But David Ross, he hasn't shown me that. This guy was a journeyman catcher. Yeah, he was a smart player. I know they love him in Chicago. I, I think they really could have gotten someone that, one, achieved the goal of refocusing and creating a little bit more urgency in the clubhouse, but they didn't get that. I, I thought they, the Espada guy out in Houston, I think that could have been a, a better hire. Really, they let Dave Martinez go, and you know you, you can argue that Joe Madden deserved that year in 2018. Um, but, you know, really, I mean, Dave Martinez won a World Series, so you can go back in hindsight, and maybe they did drop the ball there. Secondly, you got the New York Mets. Okay, Carlos Beltran, I think that's a good bet. He really earned respect in his final years as someone that really is astute with the game. Um, he's someone that is also bilingual which I think is kind of a sneaky big deal when talking about a manager, someone that is bilingual. I think that was something that Mike Matheny, who I'm going to get to in a minute, the new Royals manager, um, is a little bit underrated. He's, he is bilingual. He knows how to speak Spanish. You can relate to the Latino players a little bit better because the barrier isn't there. Uh, Carlos Beltran, I, I, I like that one. I think he's going to do a, a fine job in New York given the circumstances he's inheriting he'll always have something to deal with with the will ponds and how they how they operate uh but a but a real sound hire with uh especially who's general manager with uh brody van wagen uh joe madden saw it from a mile away some things you just know in life that's going to happen he's going to the angels that's a fit the owner um billy epler over there the general manager he's a yankee he can now operate with a high payroll with a traditional manager Joe Madden, that's uh, an easy one. Now, the San Diego Padres, I'm not even going to pretend. Chase Ting Tingler, okay, I guess he was the Rangers uh, field director in the minor leagues. I'm not even going to pretend I know what he is, okay? Obviously, he comes from a very sound organization with the Texas Rangers. They develop players very well, a very strong uh, tradition in player development. I think from that perspective, getting his hands on younger players, maybe he can sprinkle a little something on them, get them winning a few more games, really refine some players in San Diego that frankly have been underwhelming, very talented, but they haven't all delivered all that much. Maybe he can tinker with some things and have them playing some better ball in really what is a wide open NL West here in 2020. Now, the one that I'm really excited about, one I'm really excited about is Mike Bethany. I already mentioned the bilingual factor. The thing that people fail to mention, especially around these parts, um, I say these parts, people that talk about the St. Louis Cardinals, it is just tiring, absolutely tiring to hear them talk about all the deficiencies of Mike Matheny. Yeah, he's got them, okay? He, I think he did a above-average job in St. Louis. Okay, and that's saying something given when you open up the record books of the Cardinals. Okay, you would almost say, oh, he did a great job. No, it was just above average. But the thing that is grossly overstated is his deficiencies. Because I think a lot of it was somewhat out of his hands. I really do. And on the other side of the coins, the thing that, on the proverbial coin... He didn't get credit for some of the things that he did well. He stuck with Michael Waka during a tough season, a tough start to the season, and down the stretch, Michael Waka pitched very good. John Jay, he stuck with him when Peter Borges came to town and everyone thought he should be starting in center field. What did John Jay do? Continued to bat 300, and he played center field. Mike Matheny did that. 
Those are things he needs to be given credit for. And when talking about something he didn't do well, yes, I know the two words, the bullpen, he did not manage that well. What was always glaringly obvious and why I'm so happy he is with the Royals was that Mike Matheny clearly wanted a bullpen, or maybe he didn't even want necessarily. Clearly what he showed you that he needs to be an effective manager is a bullpen in which he can not have to worry about splits, where he doesn't have to worry about matching up one pitcher with another batter because this pitch is very competitive to that hitter because of his swing path, and that he can't do all that. That's not his strength in also managing for the next day and the next week and the months beyond that. That's not something he is. He's more of a player's manager where he's managing communication. He's managing playing time from a position standpoint. Pitchers in relief, he's not good at that. He needs a bullpen in which he can, quote-unquote, hand off innings. All of this sounds familiar to me because this is what was being said about Ned Yost. He flunked out of Milwaukee. It was down the stretch, too. If you remember that with his time with the Brewers. What did he do? He went to the Royals and he had success. You took a little bit off his plate and allowed him to just focus on the things that he did well, which was relate well to younger position players. Now, Mike Matheny... People in St. Louis will tell you, you know, the whole Colton Wong thing, the Matt Adams thing, Randall Grichik. Okay, let's not call these guys superstars. Yes, Colton Wong has gotten better, but he also had a terrible, terrible few seasons when Mike Matheny was, I guess, supposed to be playing him. There were times he was batting under 200. Matt Adams, yeah, he's had a nice role in the major leagues off the bench. He still can't hit a slider low in it. That is still his kryptonite. Kryptonite, excuse me. Randall Grichik, yeah, he got a nice big contract, you know, given uh, given his production to that point. But really, he's the same old player that he was in St. Louis. I'm not buying that he can't relate to younger players. There was guys in his corner when he was in St. Louis. Matt Holiday, Matt Carpenter, who when Matheny took over, experience-wise, Matt Carpenter was young. This guy can manage, I think, really what the Royals are angling at. I think the Royals are angling the inefficiencies in the game. Stealing bases, defense, starting pitching development. These are all things that they're saying, okay, you know what? A lot of you are going to zig, we're going to zag. We're going to go the other way. They're doing something similar to what they did when they won their World Series. They went the route of, okay, we can't afford starting pitching. We just can't. This was back 2013, 14, 15. They said, okay, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to have a very good bullpen because we can't afford those guys. What happened after those years with Wade Davis and uh, uh, HDH? I'll just shorten it that way. What happened with Andrew Miller when you realize how effective bullpen arms were? They started getting paid $9 million a year. Andrew Miller was a start. Now it's all the way up to $18 mil with Araldis Chapman. Well, what are they seeing now? The Royals are saying, okay, we're going to get guys that can run. We're going to steal bases because catchers, no one's running on them because they all have under 2-0 pop times. Well, if they're not seeing people steal bases all that often, that means they're not getting a whole lot of practice. 
maybe if we start stealing a lot of bases, we can sneak a few more and be pretty good at it. Maybe when we steal those bases, we're going to force defenses that put on shifts to play it straight up. And then maybe if we put the ball in play when strikeouts are abundant, those holes will be found and balls will be in the outfield and we'll get more runs. Okay, they're cornering the inefficiencies. All these, all of these things are more traditional. That's the way Mike Matheny wants to play. Mike Matheny says, give me a starting pitcher who knows how to throw three pitches and can go deeper into games, something that's been practiced at the minor leagues. That's what the Royals are doing with all of these left-handed arms that are very young that they drafted in college. That Mike Matheny is very conducive, in my opinion, for this Royals team. I'm very interested to watch this. I think a lot of these managing openings overall, I like him so far. I forgot Joe Girardi. I think he's perfect. Joe Girardi is perfect for Philadelphia. Joe is just, he's way more traditional. Philly is very impatient. Uh, Joe always said that what he wanted to be remembered as, as a Yankee manager, was that he tried to win every game. He's going to bring the same thing to Philadelphia. Um, You know, I, I think these managerial openings that are still out there, they're going to be interesting. The Giants, the Pirates, but none other. None other is more intriguing to me than Mike Matheny with the Royals. I think this is a good fit because I always viewed him as a Ned Yost type, someone that deserved to be managing in the American League as opposed to the National League. I cannot wait for March of 2020. You know, I mentioned him earlier in the podcast. Now it's time to take a a deeper dive into it. And that's uh, a guy that's discussed quite a bit on here. A guy that I tweet about, again, at Pete4C. That's number four, letter C. You can find me on all social media. That's Twitter, that's Instagram, that's Snapchat. Give it a follow. Uh, engage that way. Tell me your questions, your comments, anything you got to say. Uh, you know, I will respond. I, I love engaging that way. But this guy is someone that, you know, I, I've been tough on, but I feel like it's always been justified. I have given him credit for his talents, for his skill. I've always just pointed out the fact that there's some leadership deficiencies, I believe. Um, I think he has players on his team that like him. However, I don't always think it's conducive to winning. I also believe that winning, while it is a top priority, while I think he wants to win very badly, I think it also prioritizes his fedoras and his post-game outfits. And it's just kind of like, what is the real motive here? Do you love playing football or do you just love everything that comes with football? And it's okay to like those other things, but you know when you're making $19 million a year, Uh, You should really like the position, and hopefully you love the craft. And I'm talking about Cam Newton. I'm talking about Cam Newton because he went on an injured reserve on Tuesday. And his future with the Carolina Panthers is very much up in air. Because, like I said, he makes $19 million. The Panthers can save that against the cap. And that's quite a bit of money to allocate to other players. But on the flip side, and the argument I'm going to make is that's a bit of a bargain for a quarterback, especially of Cam's talents. Which is all leading me to this. I think the Panthers are far too invested from a coaching standpoint, a leadership standpoint, an infrastructure standpoint, talking about players, roster, identity, to really kind of turn on Cam at this point. He is 30 years old. Now he's an older 30, given his health. But it really comes down to this in my eyes. 
there just has to be a real conversation between Cam Newton and the Carolina Panthers. The Panthers really need to see, do what we want, does that align with you, Cam? Both sides just have to be honest here. Because I think if both sides are willing to be in harmony on this, there's no reason not to continue. I still think he's got some game left. Now, maybe it's about three, four years tops. Maybe we're looking at like a two or three year window. But two to three years in the NFL, that's a long time, okay? Okay, I just got done talking about tanking. All right, things things flip very easily. That's why you don't tank, and that's why the Panthers need to really have this conversation with Cam. And it goes something like this. Cam, we want to use you like we did in 2015. We know we have not. We've tried to make you more of a drop-back passer. We've tried to make you more of a touch thrower. We've gotten away from our identity. We have not been running you as much. We believe that we need to throw in design runs, utilize you that way as a threat to then open up bigger throws down the field for big chunk yards. We want you healthy, but we also believe that our best chance to win is putting you in harm's way. It's just the reality. Cam, what do you think? Where are you at from your health standpoint? Now, if Cam Newton says, Coach, you know, I've I've had a lot of injuries. I really believe I can play in the way that we've been trying to play the last couple of years, even though we've had mixed results. I think I can be a passer that drops back 40-plus times a game and makes all the throws on the field. That's what I'm looking to you to do, and that's how I want to be used. Then it's time to go the separate ways. If that's what Cam wants to do, another team will likely – take a chance on them, but the Panthers cannot continue in this way. Because right now, they can operate with Kyle Allen at a moderate level. I think he's not as good as Cam. I don't think he is. But right now, they can operate at a basically same level at a cheaper rate, and then they can go out and and get additional pieces. And then they can start looking for more of a long-term answer. Because it's not Kyle Allen. I, I, I won't say that. I'm sorry. You know, I, I haven't watched every single game of the Panthers this year that he started at, but he certainly doesn't have long-term viability. Not in my eyes. I think if Newton is willing to go back to how he originally played and so are the Panthers, I think they really need to stick around given not only his salary and what you could sign him up for for the games that he's missed, but also it's just that's what their identity is. I think you stick with them. If not, there's going to be suitors out there for Cam Newton, um, not going to get into those necessarily. I think the Indianapolis Colts are one, depending on how they view Jacoby. That's just me. I tweeted that out earlier. Um, I, I believe just from strictly schematic coaching identity standpoint, the best fit are the Colts. But I could also see the Tennessee Titans, if we're being realistic here, of what vacancies at the quarterback position are going to be there. I think Tennessee would be up that alley. But overall, I think the Cam or I think the Panthers need to stick with Cam Newton now. When we're talking about injuries here and kind of how it relates to what you should do, I really think the future of Patrick Mahomes, I don't know if you have to necessarily think about it the same way. I think it come, when it comes to Mahomes, you, you look at it like this. Yes, he would increase the odds of winning against the Titans if he played, even at a fraction of his health. But... I think you need to try and win the game with someone like Matt Moore at quarterback at a lesser percentage because putting Mahomes in that game against this team only makes him more vulnerable. When we're talking about that knee, 
according to what I'm reading here about this injury, I'm not a freaking doctor, okay? But the increased rest of time off significantly protects you against re-injury. It's not like some injuries where obviously rest helps, but over a certain period of time, like a hamstring, it could be two months in or it could be four months in and you could re-injure it to the same severity. Not the case with this injury with Mahomes. I think you do have to sit him. I think you have to try and win with Matt Moore at quarterback. As it stands now, if he were to play, if it were to be Matt Moore, I think it would be one of those gritty games. I'm looking at, you know, I always tweet out my final uh, my final predictions of the score. That's at Pete4C. Again, it's Pete's picks. And uh, what we like to do is we pick every score. And we don't go against the spreads and the money lines and the upper-unders and whatever. I don't do sports betting. What I do is I pick what the – I tell who I think is going to win. This is the score based off what I know about all the teams. That's what I do. Had a pretty good week last week. That's at Pete4C. As I see it now, for this Titans game in Nashville for the Chiefs, right now it's it's a score where I think it's going to be in that low 20s. I could see that that 24-20 Chiefs victory. I think they can win with Matt Moore at quarterback. I think when Mahomes is on the field, obviously you increase your chances, but he is at risk. He is at risk. I don't understand why not take it why not take it off and then play him down in Mexico? Now, you can go with the whole turf issue and how that shook out with the Raiders and the Patriots a couple years ago and how it's going to Mexico uh, last year when they were scheduled to go there. I, I get all that, but, you know, the NFL is being super cautious since that did happen last year. I think the turfs can be ready to go. You're not going to have to worry about Patrick Mahomes playing on there against the Chargers. He needs this rest. I'm not talking about for long-term viability. I'm merely talking about this season. Because I think you do need to get him back on the field because this team is ready. This is one of the top seeds in the AFC. But at the moment, I don't want him playing this week, even if he is serviceable under center. Based off this injury... I think you got to look at it that way. You have too much to gain from the time off. Let's go, Chiefs. Don't play them. Panthers, play Cam. Sign him back up. Chiefs, pump the brakes. Save Patrick Mahomes from himself. Great to be back. Absolutely freaking great to be back. I'm absolutely jacked to get back on the NFL scene. We got offseason baseball talk. That's where this whole pack podcast originated from. I was talking football games. We talked off-season baseball. That's what we're back to. And we're going to take uh, an even deeper dive into it, all right? And we'll be taking a couple different angles from it, one of which I want to introduce. This is going to be hopefully a new daily segment on each podcast, and it's going to be about you all, the listeners, and it's going to be awarded based off the system in place. Here is the system currently. The very first person the very first person to reply back to me that they listen to this podcast and expresses the desire to be on the podcast will get their chance. You will get to name the topic that you want to discuss, and me and you will have a 12-minute sit-down, or it can be shorter if you don't want it to 
be that long. It can be a 10 to 12 minute sit down on anything sports that you want to talk about. You will get your audition right here on the podcast. The very first person to contact me via social media, that's at Pete4C, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. The very first person to say, Pete, I am ready to fire back at 4C. I got too many takes. I got a lot coming at you. Here comes the heat. The very first person to do that, they will get on the podcast. Again, it's at Pete4C, all social media, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. Come at me. You get your chance on the podcast. It's great to be back. I'm so happy for it. Let's talk NFL. Let's talk baseball. Let's talk anything. I'm finishing up the fourth quarter here of the Chicago Bulls, Atlanta Hawks. Bulls are going to win 113 290 right now. We'll see you next week, folks. Thanks again so much for tuning in.